Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends. This is Chris, your host, and this is the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-310. Welcome. We're in our final days of tapering leading into the Boston Marathon, and I'm ready. I'm right on my target weight. I'm strong in the legs, and I've done it a few times before. And I'm starting from the back of the pack this year in the last charity corral. It'll take me a while to get to the starting line, and it will be crowded. But it looks like we're getting decent weather, cool and rainy. And that's actually my favorite racing weather. Not dissimilar to 1998 when I set my current marathon and Boston PR. One of my friends from the running club is getting a limo to take a bunch of us out to Hopkinton on Monday morning. So there's no check bags from Hoppington anymore, so we'll just have to navigate the cool, wet weather on the morning with some throwaway stuff, and there will be a wind. I don't know yet if it's a headwind or not, but as far back in the pack as I am, there's there's lots of shelter, if you know what I mean. I don't know if I'll be carrying my phone or not. I'd love to be unplugged, but I don't know how to get my phone into Boston other than carrying it without being separated from it for over a day. I'm not sure I can handle that. It turns out this new iPhone 6, it fits perfectly into one of those half-size snack baggies, and you can use the phone right through the plastic. You don't have to open it up. Today, we have the great privilege of speaking with Brian Lyons, who was taking over for Dick Hoyt in Pushing Rick this year. It's a long one, but that's okay. We, I think we cover some good ground. In the first section, I'm going to muse on this year's Boston from my perspective, as is my annual tradition. In the second session, we'll talk about how to use an external brain to get important stuff done. Like I said, I'm good to go for Monday. I have a red Team Hoyt singlet that I'll probably put a long sleeve shirt underneath because of the weather but also because it's got some rough bits that I'd like to keep off my nipples. I still need to swing by Whole Foods and pick up some hammer gels for the race. Uh, I tried to cook, cook up my own energy gels for this cycle from organic peanut butter and cocoa powder, but it was a disaster. <laughs> 
It was like when you give a dog a spoonful of peanut butter and their mouth gets all stuck. <laughs> I'll have to keep working on that. I damn near choked myself to death on my last couple of long runs. Well, we might go long today, but I'll keep my comments short. On with the show. I am peaceful and balanced in my running and endurance sports efforts. Boston Taper Time. Here we are again. Here we are again, my friends. The short days leading up to the Boston Marathon. And it's weird. I'm not nervous at all. Maybe I've made it into one of my habits. Maybe I've made the Boston Marathon like driving to the store. Just another routine thing I do. Well, I hope not. It's quite a big deal to get yourself desensitized to. Maybe the emotional impact of the last two years has left my emotion tank running a little low. Or as my coach told me this morning, you're just old. (laughs) This routine includes training for many months and even years. This habit includes qualifying, or at least trying to, and then maybe working with a charity. And this routine involves all the things that I've learned in long-distance running and road racing over a quarter of a century. And I'm certainly not numb to it, but I guess I'm used to it. There's no taper madness this time around. There's nothing on the line. There's no big stack of chips in the middle of the table that tilt perilously in the balance of an unknown outcome. Do I have advice? Sure. I'm full of it. (laughs) More ways than one. And you've heard it all. Nuggets like watch your eating in the taper. Don't overhydrate. Get your stretching in. Avoid that yard work. Get a good massage. And clip your toenails. I've given it. You've heard it. Do I have advice about the race? Yep, I'm full of it. (laughs) Don't go out too fast. Hold back and accelerate through the hills. Don't get overwhelmed by the atmosphere. Let the race come to you. It's all ground that has been plowed before. But how do I feel? How am I going into this one? My legs feel great. I honestly haven't felt this aerobically strong since training for the ultras in 2008. I have zero zilch, nada, no pain or niggles whatsoever in my legs. Nutritionally, I'm strong. I've been trying to eat clean for a couple of months, and I'm down the 10 pounds I wanted to be. I'm at a nice race weight of 180. I tried to make sure I didn't lose too much too fast this time around. And I tried to learn some new things, some new dishes, some new cooking techniques. You might even call me lean. I've gotten the miles in. I've been running around 40 miles a week since November. I'm strong. I've been doing my core and my yoga. I'm flexible enough for a guy my age. Which is funny. Here I am. At 52 and half years old. I'm fit. I'm lean. I'm well-balanced and happy, but I'm still bothered. Sure, my big brain knows that it's silly as shit, but my animus is still bothered. I still have those bony hag fingers plucking at the back of my brain with all the things that I'm not. I'm not fast enough. 
I'm not strong enough. I'm not flexible enough. I didn't work hard enough. I didn't suffer enough. I didn't give 100%. I'm a pretender. I'm not worthy of this race and these people. And I know everyone has these thoughts. In my youth, I called them demons, and I worked to train them into muses. This is the irrational side of the human soul. This is the unquenchable fire that drives us as a race to find boundaries and then go beyond them. And I know this, but it still bothers me that I'm not scared, stiff, and sore, and broken going into the Boston Marathon. I did not go to the dark place. This training cycle was quite benign and additive in nature. I got enough three-hour long runs in, some on a hilly course in inclement weather. I raced a 20-miler with pretty good results. The base is all there. All of these data points tell me that I have nothing to worry about running 26.2 miles on a course I know well in my 49th marathon. Something would have to go fairly wrong for this to go sideways. If it weren't for my heart, I'd actually be much more nervous. Why? Because with this base, I should be able to race well and even requalify if it wasn't for my heart. My experience shows me that my heart, my Corazon del Oro, will start to go into AFib about two hours into the run. And at Boston, that means I'll lose power and efficiency well before I get to the hills. I would expect to be in full, funky chicken mode through the entirety of Newton. And if I can manage the pace and the stress of the weekend, I might be able to convince my heart to settle down through the middle miles and be able to take advantage of that last 10K into the finish. And that's the taper strategy this week. Stay away from food and drink that's going to stress my body, including alcohol. <laughs> Try to get too much sleep which may be a challenge given that I was on the West Coast and in the red eye Tuesday night. And if it all goes to shit and I stumble into Hopkinton tired and wobbly, it really doesn't matter. With my legs, I can stumble through the marathon well enough, no matter what happens or what the weather is. I'd have to die to DNF, which is a potential. My race strategy is going to be to take it easy from the start and have a disciplined, relaxed pace through Newton Lower Falls, try to relax through Newton without crushing myself. If all goes well, get to the top of heartbreak with some juice in the tank. And based on my training, that smells like somewhere between a 3.45 and a 4-hour marathon. It really depends on how hard I'm willing to push in the last 10K. And it's hard for me to get motivated when I know there's really no appreciable difference in the finishing dime, plus or minus 15 minutes, there's nothing riding on it. Why push? I'm slotted to start almost all the way to the back. I'm in one of the last charity corrals, maybe the last one. I won't get off the starting line for a good hour after the first wave, if not more. And the good news is, is that I'll be eating people up the whole way. I'll be running with happy, good-looking runners that won't have a care in the world. The bad news, or different news, is the course will be quite crowded where I am, and the paces will be all over the place. Back where I'm going to be, there's less of an emphasis on pace discipline and race etiquette. Like, it's perfectly okay to stop in the middle of the road to take pictures. Why not? I'll have to manage my expectations and stay out of grumpy old man syndrome. <laughs> That's all the tactical stuff. 
What to wear, what to eat, what to do. It's all tactics. The training is done. The tactics are just polishing the bar. There's not else to be done. What will make the day successful? Not the tactics, not the execution of yet another marathon. What will make the day successful is the impact I can have on the day, on the runners, on the spectators, and on the world. I am an ambassador of my tribe. I am Boston. I am Team Hoyt. I am Hopkinton. I am Heartbreak Hill. I am as much a part of this legend and this legacy as Johnny Kelly and Clarence DeMar, although I'll never win this race. On Monday, I leave that legacy on the streets of Massachusetts. On Monday, I renew my vows at the Church of the Unicorn, and I'll bring my energy, my smile, my karma to this great race, and I'll pitch in and do my best. I'll help those who need it. I'll entertain. I'll welcome. I'll hold court. I'll be the ambassador. One of my great faults is to make routine great things. This is not just another marathon. This is not just another training cycle. This is not just another Boston Marathon. This is a chance. This is a sliver of the space-time continuum that will never be repeated. This is a celebration. This is a great joining of my tribe. And I will try to be of service. At some point on Monday morning, your thoughts will turn to the Boston Marathon. And when they do, think of me and my tribe and send us karma and love. And if I'm lucky, I'll see you out there. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Brian, you still got your scrubs on, man. It's coming right out of work? Yes. You look stressed out, too. You got to relax, breathe. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. It's a little, been a little hectic for the past couple weeks. Yeah, I bet. I bet. How you feeling? I feel pretty good. I feel pretty yeah. good. I, uh, Eastern States was a, a good barometer of how, of how we'll feel and how we'll do in Boston. Yeah. I had a great race up there. I thought we got a good day. It was nice. The wind was chopping us down a little bit because it was coming from kind of uh, a little bit from the side and a little bit from the front. So when it came more from the front, you, you can really feel that slowing you down. Yeah, when you're pushing the chair, absolutely, because you get that wide front. He's over 100 pounds. The chair is, I believe, 37 pounds. And then it's got a 30-pound battery. So we're looking at about 170, 175 pounds. So it's like pushing myself in front of me. So the batteries for the uh, heater, for the chair heater? He's got, yeah, he's got a heated seat. That's pretty cool. Uh, that nice wide front really catches the wind, too, <laughs> is what, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it, it's kind of like a scoop. Yes. Yeah, because I, I can remember uh, in uh, in windy races, I'd look for people pushing, uh, pushing kids in double strollers and tuck in behind them because they've got a nice wide <laughs> envelope in the wind. Right. So, um, I just got a uh, shirt from Kathy today. She didn't have any uh, of this year's shirts, but she sent me one from one of last year's shirts. So, one of the uh, racing singlets. Yeah, nice singlets. So, nice singlets. Yeah, so we're going to uh, try that on. Got a new pair of running shoes in the mail today, too. So, I got to figure out how to break those in. I'm going to California tomorrow, so I'll take them with me and walk around in them. There you go. I, I did uh, Ironman Florida in a brand new pair of running shoes that. I had only walked around in for about a mile, two miles tops. And it worked out well. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, I don't have a history of foot problems, you know, like um, blisters or any of that stuff. So I don't have to be super careful on the on the footwear. I, I can run on almost anything. So, But I got a new pair of Hoka's because the last ones, it's funny because I just kept running on them. I just typically just run in shoes until they until I start feeling it in my legs. I go, oops, time for a new pair of shoes. So I think I think I had like 600 miles on the on the last pair. Wow, that's excellent. I've never yeah. I've never tried the Hoka. Uh, I've only heard good things though. Yeah, since I'm getting older, I need the uh, I need the cushion. So anyhow, Brian, let's uh, let's reel it back a little bit. So give us the uh, the 200 words on uh, who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is Brian Lyons um, from Nashville, New Hampshire. I live in Massachusetts now. I'm a uh, dentist in the town of Bill Ricca and I run for enjoyment but I'm I'm not a runner I've never really considered myself to be a runner I've always done it secondary to something else growing up I played soccer and in soccer it, it involved a lot of running and we did ski team and in ski team if you weren't skiing or racing racing you were you were running so it was yeah. always secondary to something else and you said you're a you're a uh, triathlete as well yes so it's it's funny um, when you look at soccer because that's really perfect training for long distance running because all it is is a series of you know hundred yard intervals you're out there for an hour hour and a half doing just basically intervals and recovering intervals and recovering and and, and I read somewhere that in the course of a regulation uh, soccer match you're running over a 10k. Yeah, I, I heard that as well. I was gonna, I was gonna comment on that as well. But yeah, it's excellent for getting the interval work in. So the big news, though, is that this year you're going to be pushing Rick, Rick Hoyt, in the in the Boston Marathon, in the 2015 Boston Marathon. Yes, that's exciting. So how how did they how they rope you into that? <laughs> well, if I if I could. Step back a little bit and tell you, give you a little background about myself that may help get you up to speed on, on how I, how I got mixed up with them. Like I said, I'm not a runner. I've never considered myself to be a runner. I've always done it secondary to something else. Um, when I was in college and in dental school, I would run just as a stress reliever and to keep some semblance of fitness. And after dental school, I would occasionally run for the same reasons. And somehow, my younger brother and his girlfriend and I decided we'd do a marathon. We did a Myrtle Beach Marathon in February of 2000. We thought it would be nice to enter the new millennium with a marathon. So we did that in February of 2000. And about a year later, on the night of February 6, 2001, while driving home from work, I was struck by a drunk driver. Mm. While my injuries weren't life-threatening, the road to recovery was quite arduous, both physically and emotionally. Mm. It took me until July 17th of that year to be able to sleep through the night without waking with considerable back pain. I had to sleep sitting up, and I'd often wake up with extreme pain, and I'd have to take a hot shower. Some nights I could get back to sleep, some nights I couldn't. And it took me exactly 11 months to the day of the accident to be able to run one mile without back pain. <clears throat> and it took me almost five years to be able to run five miles without pain. Wow. So my first uh, my first half marathon 
after the accident was in 2006, and my time was about 30 minutes slower than before the accident. So did you have some uh, some spinal damage? It was soft tissue and muscular in nature. Okay. That combined with what I do for a living made it a difficult road sure. for, for recovery. So where I should have been happy that I just completed the race, I, I was I was pretty discouraged. And yeah. After continually struggling with the discouragement, I was speaking with a childhood friend, and he insisted that I try a triathlon. <laughs> so I said, uh, I asked him what it was all about. He said, you swim, you bike, and then you run. How hard yeah. could that be? Yeah, piece of cake. Yeah, I've been swimming since I was a little kid, and hell, everyone can ride a bike. And as far as running, I've been pretending to do that for years. Yeah. So did you? Uh, would you start with a sprint? Uh, I was re- I was registered for a sprint, and due to Hurricane Ernesto, it was supposed to be on Labor Day weekend in 2006, and Hurricane Ernesto ended up canceling ended up canceling <laughs> the Boston Triathlon. So here I was ready for a sprint triathlon, and I started looking for other triathlons because I was ready to go. And I found this, what they call a quarter man, which is exactly one quarter of a an iron distance race. And it was in um, Arizona. So I packed my bags, went to Arizona, and I tried this, I tried this uh, quarter man race. And I was hooked. I absolutely yeah. loved it. I couldn't tell you what my finish time was or how long it took me to be able to walk comfortably. But I, I was hooked. I, I, I had nothing to compare my run time to. You know? So what? So so what? Why do you think it was so compelling for you? What made that? What what hooked you about that experience? It, it was a whole new experience, combining the swimming, the biking, and the running. And where my first race finished with a, about a um, 10k. It's actually 6.55 miles in this race. Right. I couldn't compare that run to a 10k because I've never swam. Or, or rode a bike before doing a run like that. So it was just an enjoyment. I, I started to sign up for as many triathlons as I could. And uh, it was, I, I just uh, I loved it. And the, the triathlon team that I, I joined up with is an organization called Tri-Fury. Where the sure. Largest, yeah, the, red, the, the red shirts. I know those guys. Yeah, we're the largest triathlon team in the Northeast. Always makes me mad when one of those guys passes me in a marathon. I'm like, really? <laughs> this this guy only this is only a third of what he's doing, and he's passing me. <laughs> we've got some, yeah, we've got some uh, pretty good talent. We've got everything from beginners to borderline professional uh, athletes in in the group, and that's uh, and it's, it's a pretty good group. Dick's brother Jason is actually a member. Okay, and that's. Uh, I think that's initially how this connection to Team Hoyt began. In the fall of 2008, an, an email came out to the team that they were looking for runners for the Boston Marathon charity team. And I knew that at someday I would do another marathon. And to have that marathon be Boston and, that's right. and if, to do if, it with Team yeah. Hoyt. If you got to do a marathon, Boston's a good one to start with, right? Yeah, do Boston and to do it with Team Hoyt was the was the only impetus I needed. So within minutes of getting that email, I contacted Team Hoyt, which I found out was Kathy that I was um, contacting, and, yeah. and I signed up. 
And then I just started training, not necessarily with them, but training for the marathon. Yeah. So how so how did your first race go? For my first Boston. First, first Boston, yeah. Um, I don't remember what my time was, but um, it was probably somewhere between four fifteen and four twenty one, if I recall. Yeah. And but but one of the things about getting this fondness for running back after the accident, um, I was no longer as concerned with my times. No, I only ask because a lot of people they get so hyped up at their first Boston that they tend to end up about six miles short. <laughs> well, at the time, I had actually beat my time that I had done at my first marathon in 2000. So I beat that time yeah. by I think um, 20 minutes. Yeah, good. So. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting course. It is. So it was uh, so it was positive that I beat my previous marathon PR. And um, just just to just to experience the whole weekend with Team Hoyt was pretty amazing. So did you um, actually run with those guys, or did you um, just go do your own thing during the race? No, Dick and Rick would always start just behind the the elites. Yeah, the elites, and well, the no, they'd start behind the the wheelchairs. The push rim would right. go first, and then the hand cycles, and then Dick and Rick. And, and right. actually, last year was the first year that they decided to have a duo division. And I think last year there may have been eight duos in the race. So it's, now it's an official division at the Boston Marathon. Right. I, I'm, right. A, I'm an advocate for it. I think, um, you know, I would, I would love to see the BAA or any of these other large major races have that division be called the Team Hoyt division. Yeah, that would be cool. I think that would just be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, looking back, Dick and Rick ran uh, a 240 marathon in the early 90s, right? They they used to run like a 240s in the, you know, sub threes, and they qualified for Boston, and uh, the BAA wouldn't let them run. Right. Well, initially, when Dick did this qualifying time, they said, no, you have to qualify at Rick's, the, the youngest member of the duo. You have to qualify at at his qualifying time. Yeah. So uh, Dick went down to the Marine Corps Marathon, that's called, what they call the People's Marathon, and he beat the he beat their qualifying time. For, right, which in the old days was a two fifty or something. Did a two fifty or two fifty five? Yeah, it was pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah and he blew out a two forty uh, and change yeah. at the at the Marine Corps. Two forty forty seven, I think he uh, I think he did. Yeah, and you know what's funny after. Um, after Eastern States, Dick came over to Rick and I, and he said, "Oh, you guys had an excellent, an excellent run, a great time." And I turned to him. I said, "Well, it's it's no two forty marathon, but we did good." He goes, "Yeah, but you still have three weeks." Yeah, <laughs> he's so competitive. That's what I love about him. Because uh, I can remember, you know, running Boston, and I, I knew I was having a good race if I caught those guys back in the nineties. Because they were, you know, they were so quick, and they got that head start. It's pretty amazing. Yes. So, so in 2009, we didn't start or finish with them. We started wherever we were seated for the charity runners. And so there yeah. was 2009, 2010, and 2011. I didn't, I didn't catch them. A very few charity runners on the team caught them, if, if, if any. 
And yep. but in 2012, another teammate and I caught up with them, and that was uh, crossing the finish line. Uh, it was Doug Gilliland, Dick and Rick, and and me uh, crossing the finish line with them is <laughs> one of the most uh, amazing experiences in my life. Yeah, the crowds love those guys. So the one thing is, if you're in the Boston Marathon, everybody knows those guys. And the crowd loves them. So if you're running with them, it's like this big wave. It's it's pretty pretty cool. I say that Dick and Rick Hoyt are to the Boston Marathon what Michael Jordan is to the Chicago Bulls. Yeah. So the last couple of years, you know, when I passed these guys, they'd have a whole crew of people with them. They'd have like 12 people with them all wearing the um, – the, the Hoyt uniforms. So that's why I asked the question. I was wondering if those guys started with them or they just sort of caught up with them. Caught up with them. Yeah. Okay. Because people are, people um, are seated in different uh, corrals and waves and usually the faster runners are seated in wave one. So they have a better chance of catching them than a, uh, a wave four runner. Right. Got it. Got it. So that makes sense. And so when they catch them, they just run with them. So he ends up having this whole um, sort of uh, entourage. Entourage, the entourage. <laughs> but people are encouraged to to run their own race. In shorter races, if I catch them, I don't necessarily run with them. Yeah. But in Boston, actually, in in 2012, before before the marathon, I called my brother and I said, you know, <clears throat> I'm feeling good this year. I may catch them. You know, what What do I do if I catch them, but I'm also on course for a new PR? And he said, I don't know. He goes, but you'll know when and if you catch them. Right. And I did. I caught them, and I was, I was on a course for probably a 15-minute PR, and I shut it down, and, I, and, and I, I ran their race. And it was probably one of my best – running decisions yeah yeah so um they and if i remember correctly those guys they were behind me so i'm pretty sure they didn't finish in 2013 which was supposed to be dick's dick's last race right he had said that was his last race but then with all the the crazy stuff that went down uh in 2013 he came back for last year 2014 and uh it was a giant party last year yes uh we were probably at about Mile 22 or 23 when we realized something was going on because we were heading down Beacon Street and usually the crowds are six, eight, ten people deep all along Beacon Street and it was, it was desolate. There were very few people and Dick stopped at one of the uh, aid stations and spoke with one of the uh, uh, police officers there and the police officer said, there there were a couple of explosions at the finish line and they didn't have much more information that. So we continued further forward and some, a couple of our team members had phones. And as we got further, we got more, a little more information, but we, nobody knew how accurate the information was. We heard different accounts of what was going on uh, between uh, explosions and trash barrels or explosions in the bleachers. So we didn't know what was, how accurate the information was. We were just concerned as most of our families were in or around the bleachers. 
as we got up to Kenmore Square, usually as you run through Kenmore Square, they just closed that off. To basically, became like a cul-de-sac. Anybody who caught got into Kenmore Square, the police officers were there and said, the race is over. You can't continue in that direction. You'll have to yeah. go back. Yeah. And Dick said, well, what am I going to do with my son? <laughs> he's, a, he's in a wheelchair. And none of the police officers knew what what we yeah. what we could do. So there was a gentleman who was kind enough who was just <clears throat> spectating the race. He said, oh, Mr. Hoyt, my Jeep is right there. I'd be more than happy to give you the keys and just, you know, we'll make arrangements to get the vehicle back. And Dick couldn't bring the running chair in, in the Jeep because it's, it just, just wouldn't fit. So Dick said, well, why don't you, why don't you drive? I'll sit in the back seat holding Rick up and we fit as many of the team members into the Jeep as we could. And I and a couple of other um, team members took the running chair and we were to head back to the Sheridan and, and meet there. And right. however, we couldn't make any direct route to the to the Sheridan we ended up yeah. doing approximately nine additional miles just just trying to make it back that one mile yeah and, yeah uh, it was it, it was tough because you couldn't get to where you wanted to get to um I I passed you guys on Heartbreak Hill and uh and you guys were walking at the time I don't know if you were with them on Heartbreak Hill yeah so so uh yeah I was having a bad day too I got turned around right at uh Right at right about twenty six, right where it turns onto Hereford. So yeah, same thing. It took me four hours to get back to the Marriott to find a way to get to the Marriott. So yeah, let's not talk about that anymore. <laughs> let's talk about two thousand fourteen last year, which was uh, must have been amazing. It was. It was. Before the race, I was just hoping that Dick and Rick would have the race of their lives, whatever that meant for them, whether it meant being the fastest people out there or whether it meant just having the most enjoyment they could have out of a race, I was hoping for them to have the best race of their life. But, of course, we all wanted to, to catch them, but I, I would never hope a, a slow race on them so I could be selfish to catch them. Yeah. But I did have people along the way alerting me to their time and their position, and Dick's first 9 or 10 or 11 miles were lightning quick. And, and I had only gained probably about a mile because we started later. I had only gained probably about a mile or two on them. And I said, well, if he keeps up this pace, I'll, I'll never catch him. So I had, I had to, I had to do the math in my head. How fast am I going to have to go and how far <laughs> am I going to have to go that fast in order to catch him? And luckily I did. Luckily, I, I, I did catch up with them, and I only later found out why they slowed down. It's because they stopped at every aid station. They stopped at every medical tent, uh, and they stopped to thank every first responder along the course. And there, there wasn't a wheelchair that Dick and Rick didn't stop to say hello and shake hands. Actually, Dick was alerted of a of somebody spectating that we had just passed that was in a wheelchair and he stopped and he turned around and, and he went back to make sure that they, that they said hello. You know, I, I had the same sort of experience last year that, 
uh, when I got into the the final miles, you know, on the on the backside coming down into the city, um, I started going slower because I didn't want it to end. It was special. <laughs> I started to actually try to go slower just so it would, you know, like, so I could high five the folks and and talk to people because um, it was so yeah, it was it was very special. Yeah, it it was. Uh, I caught them just after. Just after the the Newton Fire Station, the turn there, shortly yep. up the hill, and it, it just got louder and louder and louder. And then it's, yep. as we got to maybe two miles out, just before just before Kenmore Square, Uda Pippig ran out to to meet us so she could run in with us. And wow! I don't know if you know this, but she's she's um she's the coach of the marathon team, and she came out to to meet us and to have her waiting for us to run in with us was pretty amazing. Yeah, she's uh she's a pretty pretty positive person. I uh I follow her on Facebook and I look at all she seems to really enjoy life. She does. And she loves running and she loves the Hoyts and she's such a wonderful woman. So uh, the baton has been passed, though, Brian. It has. The baton has been passed. And so what's your plan this year? How are you going to make us all proud? No pressure. <laughs> well, the baton has been passed. Dick is still going to do the, the shorter races. And what he calls shorter is half marathon or less. And he's still going to do triathlons with Rick. So there's there's no slowing down for him. He's just retired from the marathon distance races. So the baton has been passed, but I am not replacing Dick. No one could do that. I'm merely a fresher set of legs. So you got a, a crew to run with this year, um, or are you going to let people catch you, so to, like uh, like like Dick did? I don't want anyone to catch me. This is a race. <laughs> I'm going to catch you. Well, I I wish you luck. I, um, <laughs> I encourage everybody to have the best race of their life. And if it means catching me, great. Yeah. So this is a pretty special thing that you're inheriting here, you know. Must give you some pretty strong emotions when you think about it. How is this special and different for you? Well, I love running with Rick. And, you know, a lot of people, I know it's it's, it's an incredible honor. And a lot of people see that. At the end of the day, I'm just I'm just a guy going out. Excuse me. I'm just a guy going out for a run with a friend at the end of the yeah. day. Yep. Yep. And that's what that's what it all is, right? Our community is pretty special. It is. So there'll be a, well, there'll be a lot of emotions and and for me, um I'm sure for Rick and 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 I'm sure also for Dick. I mean, just the thought of seeing Dick on the sideline watching is it's pretty emotional itself. Yeah, you got to figure for uh, Ricky too, because you know that first race was uh, 1977, right? Yes. So <laughs> that's you know 30 years these guys have been doing this. It's going to be a big, uh, it's going to be a big celebration, Brian. So is uh, Dick going to be down in the bleachers at the finish line? Well, actually, they just announced that Dick would would be the Grand Marshal of the Boston Marathon. Right. Right. I heard that. So he's pretty excited to to finish before Rick. Yeah, he gets to ride in the car. So yes, he will be at the finish line, uh, whether it'll be in the bleachers or 
at the finish line. Um, he will be there. Well, the only way I'm going to see you guys is if I catch you. So I'll have to do that because uh, you you guys all assemble down at the down at the church, right, with the elites. Down at the there's a different area where you guys get together, isn't there? Are you are, are you in the gym? Uh, I'll Dick Dick Rick and I will be at at the gym at the the center school. Okay. The, the, yeah. We have other members on the team that will be meeting at a private residence. Um, right. Because so yeah, I, I got I got lots of options. Um, so we'll be fine. I mean, I try not to overcomplicate it because. You always have these people that go, oh, I'll meet you here, I'll meet you there. And they don't realize how much of a zoo it is, right? True. And uh, it's just, I just let it happen. I just let, let the whole thing come to me. So uh, I'm pretty laid back about it in the morning. Don't want to be thinking about stuff. All right, well, I look forward to seeing you in, uh, let's see, 10 days, 9 days? It's 10 days. And 10 days. Yeah. Hopefully this weather's going to break. But actually, drizzly and, and uh, mid-30s wouldn't be bad marathon weather. I hope we don't get the, uh, you know, where it just flips to the 90 degrees. <laughs> no, Rick would prefer it a little bit on the warmer side. I would, too. Yeah. That means we don't have to run the chair with an extra 30-pound battery. Yeah, exactly. But you're going to have to carry water instead. That's right. So I don't know if you remember, but uh, you remember 2004? Uh, oh, that's now the second hottest year or something? Now the second hottest, yeah. But I remember because the week before, it was just like this. It was like 30s and drizzling, and none of us had seen the sun. And then all of a sudden, it was 87 in Hockington <laughs> and sunny. We all got we all got sort of croaked. So <laughs> I think that's one of the things that also makes Boston a more difficult race, the weather. Uh, it's more difficult for people training here because they have to train through the weather. And then when people are training out in San Diego and Phoenix, they're not getting, they're not getting the hills and they're not, they're not training in the potential weather. It's not, it's yeah. not a predictable day. Yeah. It's not an easy race, but I guess that's what makes it special, right? We wouldn't have it any other way. That's right. Yeah. If you knew it was going to be sunny and 72 degrees with light coastal trade winds, like every single race, every single day of the year in San Diego, it takes the yeah. fun out of it. Yeah, what fun is that, right? Exactly. All right, man, I'm going to let you go. Thanks for uh, thanks for chatting with me. Thank you. And, uh, and we'll see you uh, on race day if we're lucky. I would just like to, on, on behalf of Team Hoyt, on behalf of Dick and Rick Hoyt, and on behalf of the Hoyt Foundation, I would just like to thank you for your support and raising money for the foundation. Yeah, oh, my my uh, my privilege. And do you have any uh, links you want to give? Not that I know offhand. <laughs> yeah, I mean the Hoyt Foundation is not hard to find. Right. <laughs> you can you can always go to www.teamhoyt.com or you can yep. go to www.teamhoytnewengland.com. Both great organizations. Yep. yep. All right, Brian. Thank you. Let's get on. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. If I have planted one seed, I am happy. If I have nudged one thought, I am satisfied. The next time we meet, we will both be different people, but our common base of understanding will have grown. The power of the external brain. Your brain is for thinking, not storing. You're lying in bed at night. You need to sleep, but you can't. 
a list of things keeps looping through your brain. Maybe it's the things you need to do or the engagements that you have coming up. You loop through the tasks and meetings in an exhausting game of idea Tetris, trying to bring all these things into order in your brain to line them up in some cohesive way. You can't sleep because your mind is a runaway train of stuff management. Your brain is caught up in a game that it can't win, trying to solve a problem it shouldn't be tasked with in the first place. Then in the morning, you get up, you try to meditate to calm your brain. And no matter how much you try to relax and focus on the breathing, thoughts come cascading into your consciousness like wild horses. You push one away, only to have another intrude. You finish your session, not more relaxed, but perturbed that your active brain won't give you any peace. There's your 9 o'clock appointment that you need to read that report for. Mother's Day is coming up, right? And you can't miss that. The dog needs to be washed. What is your workout for today? Is there enough gas in the car for that trip to the airport? Because you know how much it sucks to get home late from a flight and find the tank empty. Did you forget to return that recruiter's call? Do you have enough clean underwear for this week? Oh, God, you have to find time to have that conversation with your kids or your spouse or your parents or your employee or your boss. On and on it cascades like a herd of rabid and confused weasels. Your mind is unsettled because you're giving it too much work, because you're giving it the wrong kind of work, because you're asking it to do work that it isn't good at. What you need is an external brain. What, you may ask, is an external brain? It's simply a device or a process that allows you to take things out of your brain and put them somewhere else so they don't nibble at you all day. Your brain is great at lots of things. It's great at coming up with ideas. It's great at solving problems. What it's not so good at is storing things. More appropriately, you shouldn't try to store everything in your brain. When you try to store everything in your brain, it becomes like a hoarder house. You can't find stuff and you can't have great ideas because of all the clutter. Have you ever tried to remember a long number, like a passcode? You can do it up to about five or six digits, but unless you have a methodology, your brain starts to struggle after six digits. Have you ever tried to schedule a meeting on a busy day with four busy people? What are the odds of finding an open slot that works for everyone? This is the type of problem that you're launching into your brain without knowing it when you don't leverage an external brain. Your brain doesn't know it can't solve these problems and starts to iterate, to run algorithms, to spin out of control, looking for potential solutions. And that keeps you awake at night and intrudes into your waking consciousness. External brains allow you to declutter. External brains allow you to remove some of these endless loop scheduling programs from your CPU. The first example of an external brain is your list. You need some place where you can write down your to-dos, and whether these are simple tasks like pay the credit card or more complex projects like paint the house or write the next great American novel, you need a system and a place to safely store these things so you don't have to constantly think about them. I keep mine on a piece of paper. 
Every day, I write down the tasks I want to accomplish. Every day, I get the great joy and that little dopamine hit that comes from scratching off those scribbled tasks. At the end of the day, when I run out of energy, I know what I didn't get to, and I have the option to roll it over to tomorrow. Almost every day I review my list, I add stuff, I delete stuff, but I'm not slavish about it. It doesn't drive me, it's just a safe collection area where I can put stuff I don't need to think about. In the morning or at the end of the day, I can look at my list and see how much slack I have in the day. I can figure out how most efficiently to schedule my times to get the most stuff done. And this is especially important when I have a workout and I have nutrition I have to fit in. This is an example of managing and scheduling interdependent activities. My point is that these tasks and projects are stored in a safe place. My big brain doesn't have to give itself hernias trying to keep them all under control. I only have to consider them when I'm doing them or reviewing them. Other than that, they aren't cluttering up my thinking. The second very obvious example of the external brain is the schedule. Everyone has a calendar of some sort. Calendars are great to keep appointments and any documents associated with those appointments. And they even give you a 15-minute warning. Your schedule keeps your brain from having to look at your watch every 10 minutes. And more interesting, another great and useful manifestation of the external brain is a coach. I love having a coach, whether for nutrition or training or life. Coaches don't just bring expertise. They allow you not to have to think about the training. They do your worrying and your analytics for you. External brains can be processes as well. What do I mean? Well, you know how much I like habits. Habits, not hobbits. I like hobbits too, but habits are much more useful. Here's an example. I installed a car key rack on the wall just inside the door that leads up from my garage and... Do you want to know where my keys are? Well, right now they're actually in my computer bag, but if I was at home, they would be in that key rack. Why? Because I don't have to think about where my keys are. I can use that processing power for something else. Why would you spend even 20 minutes of your life hunting for keys in your house? Even with a life like mine that does not have a set routine, I try to make habits out of the routines that I have. Try to routinize as much of the rote stuff with habits and organization. And again, don't go crazy. There are things that shouldn't be habits, like love and family. Don't overprogram your life so that the simplicity gains start to crowd out the richness and joy. Another example of the external brain is something that humans have always been good at, organizing into groups. These are the people that you work with. If you manage those people correctly, they become part of your external brain. Hire people and work with people who you can leverage to meet mutual goals. Give them responsibilities and processes so you get the results without having to chase them. As an aside, if you want to make yourself crazy, hire people who need to be watched and then micromanage them. I'm sure, if you think about it, you can find plenty of other ways to create external brains so you don't have to carry all those bristling thoughts around with you. Your brain isn't meant to be a parking lot crowded shoulder to shoulder with pensive thoughts and runaway subroutines. And the final thing to remember is that most of those swirling thoughts that keep you awake just aren't that important. 
If you drop something, nobody's going to die. Unless, of course, you're on the bomb disposal squad. That, that might be different. But if you find yourself staring at the ceiling while your brain whirs like a blender on liquefy, you need to get some of those thoughts out of your mind and into an external brain. An effective way to do this is just to have a journal of some sort available to you before you go to bed so you can write these thoughts and ideas down. Once they're captured, they're safe, and your mind can let them be. And the same is true if those thoughts are intruding on your meditation. Just have a pad of paper handy and write down a few one- or two-word reminders, and then return to your breathing, unencumbered. Life's too short to be cluttering up your mind. Find ways to leverage your external brains so that you can use your brain for the important things in life. This is the end, my only friend. No safety or surprise. The end. We'll never pass this way again. The end. That was a good one, bud. That's it, my friends. Episode 4-310 in the can. We'll see what happens over the weekend. I may do a race report or not. It's a lot of work to write something that I'm proud of. You don't really know the appropriate theme until after the race. So you can't really prepare that much for it. You can't do a lot of pre-work for it. And I've got the Groton Road Race coming up the following Sunday on the 26th. And we've still got shirts. If you want to register, we'd love to have you. Tell your friends. And then I'm going to go in and get my heart fixed. And then it will be summertime. And the living will be easy. I was out in California this past week. I flew out Saturday and came back on the Red Eye Tuesday night. I was in Huntington Beach. And you may or may not know, depending on where you're from, that Huntington Beach is known as Surf City, USA. Right? You remember the music? The Beach Boys, all that stuff? Surf City, USA. Two girls for every boy. You remember that stuff. Well, it's still there. And this is one of the centers of the surfing culture from Southern California, where all these great terms and slang and looks come, fashion come from. Well, there's surf shops and beach cruiser bikes and classic cars cruising in circles. It's that whole surfer vibe. Sunday, I'm wandering around the resort where I was working, killing some time before dinner, and ended up going into the surf shop where they sell shirts and baggy shorts and flip-flops to the tourists. And there's a couple of young guys lounging behind the counter. And they were your, your typical surfer dude types. And me being me, I figured I'd go chat them up. And I say, you guys look tired and bored. To which the one guy replies, yeah, we're the surf instructors, but they make us work in here. And the other dude says, yeah, man, long night, you know. And I nod as if I can commiserate. And he thinks I don't really get it. And he goes on. I was up all night, man. You know, those Spanish girls. And I try to act like that's something I can relate to as I stand there in my business suit and my sort of midlife crisis look. And he thinks I still don't get it. And he says, you know, man, the 6'2". And I kind of agree and sort of move on, wondering what the hell the 6'2 means. And I tell this story to the guys that I'm with, and we come up with all sorts of theories around what 6-2 means. Maybe it's a body type ratio or a start and stop time. And we Google it, 
but the Urban Dictionary, while having some fairly unsettling definitions, doesn't seem to quite fit. And we spend the next couple of days asking people and not getting any good answers. And I go back to the shop, but those dudes aren't working there anymore. And it's starting to really kill us, not knowing what this means. So we're out to dinner that night, and I can see that the busboy is clearly a surfer dude, cut from the same cloth. And I call him over, and I tell him my story in a conspiratorial and hushed way, finishing with the big question, what does the 6-2 mean? And he says, well, bro, it's kind of hard to explain. And I say, well, just give it your best shot. And he continues, well, it just means he was tapping that shit all night long, man. Mystery solved. That's all it meant. There were no ratios or timing measurements involved. Now you know. Now you've got early access to some surf slang. I can see the ultra runners using this one. How were the middle 50 miles, guys? It was the 6-2, bro, all trail, all night. And with that, I leave you to your own adventures. Don't wait. Step out the door. Do it today. There will never be a good or convenient time to do epic stuff. Enjoy your race. I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. On and on it cascades like a herb of... (laughs) A herb. (laughs) I'm on the herb, man. (laughs) 